Hello, and welcome to Pete's Percussion Podcast. I am your host, Pete Zambito. Thank you for joining me today. This is episode two, where I am talking with David Grubb, who is the Director of Marketing and Communications for Dillard University in New Orleans. And I will get to my interview with him momentarily. My first thing, and the first thing I wanted to talk to you about is, and some of you know this, but there have been some things that have gone down at my school this past week that has been extremely upsetting and disappointing, and I've never been more uh, disappointed and angry at my school as I have been this week. In a curator's vote in a meeting with the president, with the administration and the board of curators, the they voted to eliminate the music degree programs that Lincoln offers, and they voted to uh, deactivate the history program uh, for a three-year period. There's still a lot to shake out and figure out as to why this happened. Um, there are articles I can I will post on my website and with the feed to let you know more about the situation. But it is all very disappointing and upsetting for so many reasons. Uh, I'm not actually going to... I don't want to get into it right now. Mostly because... I am still trying to figure out, and we as faculty and the campus are still trying to figure out what the next step is for all of the faculty and staff in all of these departments and the students that are going to be, that are in the departments. There's just a lot to figure out. So anyway, I will keep you posted in upcoming weeks as to what's going on. And feel free to contact me if you want more information. Those of you who are older, like my age or so, know that there's nothing better than talking to an old friend after a long period of time. And it feels just like you had just talked to him last week. I say this because this is exactly the kind of conversation that I had with my guest today, David Grubb. David and I went to Wake Forest together and along with our, um, you know, sort of famous classmate, Tim Duncan, and he and I had not spoken to each other in a long time, although we do text each other quite regularly, particularly during sporting events. And it's usually in depression when his Detroit Lions and my Jets uh, inevitably just fall down on the job which they tend to do every year. So we have an equal commiseration society going that way. David recently has been doing a lot of writing, and he has been... Uh, he's, his work is featured on sportsnola.com. He lives in the... He lives in Baton Rouge. Now, I'm not going to lie. A lot of this conversation becomes two old men talking about their college years. So if you were a Wake Forest person, if you are a Wake Forest alum, 
I strongly recommend listening to this. Just because there's going to be a lot of stuff that we talk about that you remember. Uh, as well as many other things going forward. Among the things we're going to talk about in this wide-ranging conversation are a complete breakdown of my college jump shot. A, you're going to hear about David growing up in Louisiana. His career in TV and media, working in sports mostly. Trying to find Cajun food in Massachusetts. And this also is going to spend a little bit of time talking about David's diagnosis of bipolar disorder uh, in his early 20s and living with that. We closed, we're going to close the, the wide-ranging talk with a discussion about Prince, which is originally the reason I wanted to talk to him, because he and I are both huge Prince fans, and this was recorded May 1st. 2016, about 10 days after Prince died. So it was fresh in our minds, and we really, it was a kind of a great memory to re recall, you know, our memories of Prince. And it still makes me smile just thinking about that. So here it is my conversation with David Grubb. Uh, go ahead, David. Let me just check your volume here. Mic check. Mic check. <laughs> One, two, what is this? Ugh. Fife. Yep. Ugh. It's been a rough year. It sucked. I even brought it I brought it up at um one of our concerts recently. Actually, the concert was the same day as Prince dying. And I was like, once that happened, I'm like, I had to bring up everybody. And I'm like... This year's just been terrible. Note that you had, uh, you said something about getting ready for graduation this week. What yes. was the for, where, and and how, and what? Uh, I am the director of communications and marketing at Dillard University mm -hmm. in New Orleans. Right. Um, Dillard is one of the oldest HBCUs in the country. It was founded okay. in 1869. Oh, so our commencement is on May seventh. Okay, uh, and I would be graduating 220 uh, students this year. What's the um, what's the enrollment? About 1,200. Okay, um, our high was right before Katrina, around 2,000. Okay, and it's been you know everything in New Orleans has been a process since Katrina. Sure. How long have you been there, at Dillard? This this year, February first. Right? Yeah, oh. February first. So it's been wow. it'll be three months today. Today marks three months. Nice. What, how did you uh, how did you get the job? They sought me out. Um, you know, I was I had been working for myself, freelancing, mm -hmm. uh, and uh, I I had a connection with the university through the athletic department. I'd done some work for them, and uh, with the Gulf Coast Athletic Conference, which mm -hmm. Dillard is a member of. Yeah, and I was doing uh, sports information work for them. Uh, they had asked me to interview once before, and I was kind of leery about it. I had an experience prior to that with another school and it didn't go that well. Mm -hmm. So I wasn't really interested at first, but they were persistent. They asked me to come in and interview. It went well and uh, it felt like a challenge that I'd like to take on. Um, so they made me an offer. They gave me the Godfather offer and <laughs> I decided to join. 
Nice. What um what's the what's the job entail? Um really right now the, the difficulty is that it's been a university that doesn't have um an, an either a local or a national identity. Mm. Uh, so a lot of what I've been doing in the short term has just been kind of stabilizing what the office is. Um, okay. I think you know sometimes universities treat communications departments like ancillary services. Sure. Uh, like you know like Kinkos, people want to go in and ask for you to make a design for them or um, put something out on something that they're doing without really understanding that there's a strategy behind all of this. Yeah. So. You know, my biggest part right now has just been trying to stabilize it, get people to understand that there's a process. And then this summer, what I really want to do, and um, I've already started conversations with people, is develop for the first time in the university's history, really, a 12-month integrated strategic marketing plan um, to develop our branding, uh, to understand who we are as an organization, and to start uh, affecting two primary areas and I think you understand it on a university campus. Mm-hmm. Number one, you got to always be focused on raising enrollment, and number yeah. two is always uh, being focused on uh, getting alumni dollars. Yeah. So you know our giving rate is um, somewhere below nine percent. Yeah. And, uh, you know, trying to get into the twenties uh, at the very least. Yeah, that sounds. I mean, because I'm at a HBCU as well. Mm-hmm. So um, I th- I was gonna ask, what's the um, is is Dillard public or private? Private. Okay. Um, we're we're aligned with the United uh, Methodist Church. Okay. Uh, so it's you know different you know you have those different uh, issues that you deal with politically with that. Sure. Uh, you know, uh, dealing with alumni who are very religiously conscious. Like one of the controversies we had, and it seemed strange. Our mascot is the Blue Devils. Okay. So you know how which oh for me is I know yeah. <laughs> You automatically almost didn't take the job. I'm like, right. in the contract, I need a new mascot. You could be right. the Blue Demons because at least that's different. <laughs> and my son goes to graduate school at DePaul, oh, so he go. is a Blue Demon. All right. So, <laughs> so, so we're the Blue Devils, except we spell it in the French way with the E before the U. So, <laughs> But... When we were dealing with uh, our alums on creating a, a mascot, because we, we did a rebranding of the athletic department, yeah. they would not allow us to use any imagery that would suggest a devil. Yeah. So <laughs> there could be no horns, no tails, mm. no images like that, which kind of makes it very difficult. Because students want to have mascots to rally around. Sure, yeah. And, and, you know, I've made the case that other religious institutions like DePaul and, right. uh, you know, have, uh, uh, you know, blue devils and blue demons and all these types of things. Yeah. It was a non-starter. So, <laughs> basically, um, we're only allowed to use a DU. And, and, we, and because there's also actually litigation with us and Duke, uh, uh, we lost a court case because they said that there could be confusion. Though I doubt anyone who's ever applied to Duke has accidentally applied to Dillard. Um, we have to put Dillard Blue Devils on everything. We can't just put DU. Right, yeah. Yeah. Our, These are fun <laughs> We have a the, – the issue that sometimes comes up for us is we're Lincoln University of Missouri, and there's Lincoln University of Pennsylvania, which is also an HBCU. And um, it doesn't come up all that often, but sometimes you have to – so we have to put the of Missouri frequently um, – in it, like in any of all our messaging too, sometimes. 
Um, <laughs> but we, but we're not affiliated with Duke, so we're better. No. <laughs> yes, you're better. That does make it better. What's, but it gives um, me another reason to dislike Duke because I'm like, you know, that court case to me is just like that's Duke bullying us, right? Yeah. Because I I don't believe there's ever been any confusion. I can't see how anyone would be like <laughs> show up on our campus and say I thought I was going to Duke. Yeah. And here I am at this tiny HBCU in the middle of New Orleans. Right. Yeah. Yeah. You should uh you should find a um an Alec old Alex Dillard Arkansas jersey and throw that on. <laughs> Walk around campus. I'm from Dillard. This guy shoots and start shooting threes from the parking lot. Yeah. <laughs> I loved that guy. I know, me too. Maybe set the record for longest shorts I've ever seen. <laughs> what? What do you? He was like what? Six one, wearing you know seven three shorts or something like that. And and I think didn't he start Arkansas when he was like twenty four years yeah. old? Yeah. Yeah, he had had. So a, everything about his story was just awesome. Yeah. <laughs> he needs his own thirty for thirty. Right, he like, does. We need to talk about Alex Dillard. We do, more. we do, because he pulled up. I mean, he would be like, because the same thing. Like he'd be pulling up from the from the bottom of the uh, of the logo on the on the court. Yep. And it would just be like, ah, that's Alex Dillard. That's what he does. I mean, he'd be drilling it, but he'd be like. These are the guys that, that – there should be a 30-30 on guys that had amazing one-year stories. Yeah. Like Alex Dillard, Toby Bailey. Oh, yeah. Like, oh, just – I mean, there should be an entire 30 for 30 on those guys. Yeah. Gerald oh. Glass. Oh, yeah. I mean, just, just give me <laughs> – I want to see what those people are doing. They just need 10 minutes. We don't we – don't, Yeah. We need a short. Perfect for, for a 30 for 30 short. <laughs> right. Because I wonder where where is Toby Bailey today? I know where is he? Yeah. Oh, Maybe, the biggest mistake of his life was coming back for his sophomore season. <laughs> yeah, I know. <laughs> oh, that's that's awesome. Um, <laughs> how many? I was trying. To, how many uh, colleges are there in the the New Orleans area, greater whatever we whatever that's called? New Orleans metro area. Yeah. Yeah. So just in the city limits, you have um, Our Lady of Holy Cross, mm-hmm. Tulane, yep. uh, Loyola, yep. uh, University of New Orleans, mm-hmm. Dillard, yep. Xavier, yep. Southern University at New Orleans, yep. Delgado Community College. Okay. Um, then on, right on the North Shore, you have uh, the University of Southeastern Louisiana. Okay. And then you've got another, you've got Nunez Community College and... Um, am I missing one? I think I'm missing one. No, that's it. That's that's the metro area. So it's a lot. Yeah. Okay. And that's we're not even including like Grambling and LSU, like further out of the state. Um, right. You know. Yeah. This. I mean, we. You know, we we're known for. Ha- I mean, we have more universities than Florida, and half a third of the population. Like, we just have a lot of state universities. A lot. It seemed like a lot, right? Just just when you when you ran all that down. Um, oh yeah! Wow. You know, it was a, you know how Louisiana works. Everything is politics. Yeah. So a lot of universities were given to areas as political favors, mm-hmm. and now they're all crumbling because <laughs> so, there's not enough money or students to sustain them. I mean, we, I think we're the lowest in the nation in number of college graduates. Wow. So I think it's us in Mississippi. <laughs> 
Oh, it's always if there's a bad list, it's, it's always, always Mississippi. Mississippi. <laughs> oh God. And going to, and which is weird because like you notice the difference. You go to Mississippi and it seems like you're an old brother where art thou. <laughs> <laughs> and it's there are more places in Louisiana that are not that way. I, I have been the Mississippi Valley, so I I have a no know a little bit of what you're talking about. Just a little <laughs> right in the dip there. Itabina? Yes. I've been to the, 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 the great... The metropolis of Itabina. Metropolis of Itabina. <laughs> yeah. I've been there. And I, and I, um, and I was also at uh, Delta State because I have a couple friends there and I, um, in Cleveland. Uh, another... The other Cleveland. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> a friend of mine who, who teaches there was telling me that the problem there is... Um, it's just that he's like everything is two hours away, like Memphis, uh, New Orleans is further. I think that's like four and a half or so from there. But mm-hmm. but like all airports are two hours away. Oxford, Jackson, Jackson like it's all nothing is an hour. <laughs> <laughs> it's all a day trip <laughs> every time. Mm-hmm. It's like that's the only problem. Everything else is he yep. likes there, but except for that. But it it really is like stepping back in time in a lot of places in Mississippi. Yeah. <laughs> cool. Um, where so you? So that's right. So you grew up in Michigan, is that right? Born in Detroit, raised okay. in Michigan. We, how, we moved here when I was four, but I hold on tightly to my Michigan uh, roots. I declare myself a Detroiter. Okay. Um, my brother and sister were both born in New Orleans, so I used that to. Hmm? Are you the oldest? Yes. Okay. So they, you know, I separate myself from them with that. <laughs> they are Southerners. Yeah. I am not. I'm a Northerner. <laughs> I'm a Who happened plan. to grow up in the you South. You were four. <laughs> That's what my wife, my wife says the exact same thing. She says, you're always telling people you're from Detroit. I said, I am. <laughs> I am from Detroit. It's like you, you go back when we went back to Detroit. You yeah. know, there were people there. You know, they say, "Well, where are you from?" And I, all I can tell them is my address. I still know my address from when I was a kid. One four one one Greenview Road. And uh, but you know, other than that, there are things that I remember. Of course, I mean, I remember my first baseball game um, at Tiger Stadium. Yeah, I remember my dad taking me to the Silver Dome. Um, and I remember just little things going to get Coney Island hot dogs in Detroit, <laughs> which, you know, people like Coney Island hot dogs in Detroit, but if you've never been, you don't know how good they are. Oh, right. Um, <laughs> but awesome. it's, it's, it just, my mom's, my mom likes to tell me that I don't like things that I didn't choose uh-huh. and I didn't choose New Orleans. They chose New Orleans because yeah. it was halfway between their parents. Okay. Uh, where, so, where are their, where were, or are, or were their parents? My mom is from Birmingham. Okay. Um, and my dad, his his parents, really, he was raised by his grandparents, but they were from Port Arthur, Texas. Okay. They had moved. His grandfather had passed, but his grandmother was living in Houston. So it was about six hours from Houston and about six hours from Birmingham. So New Orleans was right. That was the compromise decision okay. was to live in New Orleans. Excellent. What did, what did, what did your parents do? Uh, my mother is um, a computer programmer, okay. and my dad is an insurance in the insurance business. He owns his own insurance company. So he were they? Was he a? So they were able. They were just able to move, like in terms of job wise. It 
they keep well, could go somewhere at else. At the time, he was, you know, they at the time he was not he doesn't he did not own his own company, so he okay. moved with he moved, you know, he took a job, and so did my mother because my mother was working in, in uh for the an auto plant in Michigan okay. program. Um, she found a job working for a bank in New Orleans, and my dad found a job working for um, an insurance company here. So, uh, you know, that's how we got down here. Wow, that's awesome. What um, what do your uh, siblings do? My brother is a doctor of education, and he works, Ooh. ironically enough, uh-huh. uh, for Krispy Kreme in Winston Salem. Awesome. <laughs> <laughs> he develops their training programs. So he's in mild stamping grounds, mm-hmm. and yeah. uh, you know, going almost, to the places that I used to go. Of course. Um, my he's sister like, is, is. He's like, I've got, I just got hams, chips, and you're like, shut up. <laughs> and everything. He's like, oh, did you know about? Yes, I knew about that. <laughs> I lived there. <laughs> There's nothing you're gonna tell me that right. I don't know. He's like, he's taking pictures. He's been on the Grove. Yeah. Um. And he's, you know, his his kids went um, went to a football game and sat on the on the hill, and I'm like, yeah, I did that? I know this stuff. You know? Yeah. I just haven't been to the new ballpark where the the dash play. I haven't been there. But, oh right, right. So he's been to a couple of dash games. So he has that on me. But well, you know, he the difference though is he's living there with money. Yes. <laughs> Yes, I had nothing. I never lived there with money. <laughs> no. no. Pooling, you know, money amongst yeah. friends. Oh, yeah. What could we eat? Right. Oh. oh, I have to interrupt for just one second because something popped into my head because I had a conversation about the other day. Uh-huh. Do you remember when we took the trip to Chapel Hill for Midnight Madness? Yes, I do. And we stopped at Waffle House on the way back. I. And, uh... well, go ahead, go ahead. I mean, I... I... But I was telling somebody because, um, you know, a lot of people, every time Tim Duncan's on TV, they, of course, they go, did you did you know Tim Duncan? Mm-hmm. And I said, yes, I, I know Tim. I'm not, you know, we're not friends, but I, I know Tim and we were friendly on occasion. We played, I played basketball on the same court with Tim. I knew mm-hmm. Tim in that way. Yeah. But, but you know, and they always say, did you know he was going to be this good? And it's like, no, nobody knew he was going to be this good. Nobody knew he'd play 20 years in the league and be right. the best power forward of all time. Yeah. But it's like, I said, we would, you know, I said, we were playing and we were living during the golden age, the second golden age, as far as I was concerned, of the ACC. Yeah. And I said, you know, everybody was good at that time. Yeah. So I said, you know, we, one year we didn't have a Midnight Madness, so we drove to Chapel Hill. Yeah. And I said, it's, it's Rasheed Wallace and Jerry Stackhouse. Yeah. And I remember them throwing the ball into Rashid five straight times and him dunking O'Brien burst sticker <laughs> and thinking, this guy is going to terrorize us for the next three years. Yeah. And then every time Duncan and him play each other, Duncan dominated him. Yeah. And I was just and it, and it totally shook my worldview because I just thought I had never seen anybody as fierce as Rashid. But Tim, Tim being Tim, and I just like, I just remember that trip, but I just remember us making that road trip. And going to travel, sitting up at the top of the Dean uh-huh. Dome, and kind yeah. of being inconspicuous, and I, I, it was one. Of, it's a great memory. It is. It was, I I had a. The funny thing is, when you brought that up, I was as immediately if you said it, I was like, I could not remember who I did that with. I just because it was like, because <laughs> yeah, it was Midnight Madness. I was like, I mean, I didn't drive. Like I knew I didn't have a car at that point. Right, I didn't drive. <laughs> 
supposed who else was with us on that? Man, that's the part that I'm trying to remember too. Because oh. there were five of us. That's yeah. what I remember. There were five. And I'm trying to remember who the five were. Was I wanna say with us? I believe it was shirts, and I want to say Zahir was with us too. Oh yeah, that makes sense. And I can't, but I can't remember the fifth. Oh. But that, but I, uh, that was I just re- I remember the game. I remember yeah. watching the game, and then I remember I remember Waffle House. I remember just <laughs> I, I always a treat. I remember it was it was uh, it was cool for like ten minutes, like because they went, did like their dunks and they and then it was they just ran and. If I remember correctly, they ran like half court sets for like a half right. hour, and it was like, do we, like, I mean, even their fans were like, uh, you know, uh, like, yeah, I didn't want to see an actual practice. Yeah, that's not. <laughs> that's not I didn't want to watch a practice. <laughs> we didn't drive an hour and a half for practice. For practice. That, uh, <laughs> no, we want to see some more dunks. I know I, exactly. Because yeah. I was talking to Tony Rutland too, mm-hmm. which is funny because I'm. I'm Tony and I have started corresponding a little bit, yeah. and uh, he was he was talking about something about Dean Smith, and I said, I wonder how Dean felt. Do you remember when he threw the lob to Scooter at the end of the game oh, at yeah. Chapel Hill? Yes. And, uh, and, and where, Tony was where, where like, were you for that? I know where I now was. that one I was, I was TV because they were in Chapel no, Hill. No, but so I mean, I where were you watching the game? I was in. Was, was in Luder. Like someone's dorm room or your dorm? Yeah, room? I was in Luder. Yeah. I remember it was in. I was in. I you remember the AV lounge in the library that had yes. the TV. I used to. I was in there way too much, and I <laughs> we but we had like fifteen people just standing around watching the game on TV in there, and when that alley oop when he when he when it went through the hoop, the library erupted like all of us like right and like just running out like cheering. And all we just like everyone sprinted to the quad to just start start the rolling process. That was a that was, those were great times. Yeah, those were great times. Yeah, because I think we were still so much of an underdog then. Yeah, and and like this year has been really cool because when Wake Forest came down and played LSU mm. in Baton Rouge, I covered that game. Yeah, and so you know it was a great win at the time because it seemed like Wake Forest was coming together at that point. I thought we were on our way to. Not a great season because I felt like we're still a young team, but I thought, hey, we might win, you know, eighteen games, nineteen games, maybe get into it. Yeah, um, and that was really the last big win they had of the season. Right, right. Uh, well, and then but, we found out how good LSU really was. <laughs> right, and but I mean, you know, I got to talk to, to Randolph Childress, um, yeah. and I got to talk to Danny Manning, and if, the fun thing too is like, you know, I hadn't seen Randolph in maybe twelve years. Sure. Um, since a homecoming, yeah, and um, so I see him and I'm like, chill. I'm, I'm just yelling from because I'm coming down from the press side and I'm like, right. chill, chill. And he turns around, and he goes, oh my god, because <laughs> <laughs> I don't look like I did then, you know. I've, I've added a few, so <laughs> and uh, I say, yeah. He's like, say, how you been? So we start talking, and um, reflexively, I just remember again these things that just come back to your head. He was the quarterback on my flag football team. Randolph was? Randolph Childress was my quarterback. John wow. Leach was also on that team. <laughs> so we had this dominant flag football team. And yeah. I'll never forget the last game that we played together was Dave Odom walking onto the field and telling Randolph he couldn't play anymore. No. Because he didn't know that he was playing with us. Oh, my gosh. 
So Odom found out we're in the middle of a playoff game. Yeah. And Randolph comes out onto the to the field and is, I mean, uh, Odom comes out of the field and is like, Randolph, come here. That was the end of our season. <laughs> we had no quarterback. We lost the next game. We're like, uh, that was it. What? Because uh, that season wasn't that during. That was before basketball season started, right? Was the play right. football season? Right. Yeah. So it was our sophomore year because yeah. remember John Leach had run for a thousand yards our freshman year. Yeah, yeah. And, and um, and so he was in grad school. Okay. So that's why he got on our flag football team. So we, he was eligible to play for us. Nice. And I mean, I mean, we were murdering people. I mean, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> scoring like seventy points a game. It was. <laughs> And Childers, Childers threw a beautiful ball. I oh, mean, nice. he had a great arm. Yeah. He was just an all-around athlete. Oh, yeah, yeah. And, but I just owed him walking out of the gym and just coming up to the field. And he's like, that's it? <laughs> I guess he had visions of that ACL tearing again oh. and just some overzealous freshman from Kappa Sig. Right, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Some kid from Rocky Mount is going to knock his star player out. <laughs> Who's just pledging. You know? <laughs> it would be that. <laughs> but I'm like, I'm, I'm all like, you cost me my flag football championship, man. You cost me man. a t-shirt. <laughs> yeah. I was so mad. Max oh. was like, hey, well, you know, it happens. <laughs> you know, Max was so chill. I love that guy. Oh, that's great. Oh, that's so cool. <laughs> How did you um I'm I'm jumping ahead a little bit, but how did you end up getting to Wake? Um uh, that's a that's a good one. Cause I had Wake was not on my radar for at I mean, I mean, you know, I grew up in Louisiana. Sure. I was my dream was I'm going to Michigan. Mm-hmm. You know, that was I'm going back home, I'm going to Michigan. Yeah. And um there was four. a college fair. Remember you were four when you left. I just wanna just just re- reiterating. Anyway, right. Go ahead, sorry. But that had been the dream, you know. This, <laughs> yeah. I had the Michigan pennant on my wall. Uh-huh. Bo Schimbeckler was it was yeah. America Bo uh-huh. Schimbeckler family. Yeah, yeah that, that might have been the, you know. So those were my dreams. Mm-hmm. And then the second one, my second choice was Michigan State because uh-huh. I had family members who had gone there. Yeah. So I wasn't thinking about Wake Forest, but um, Ernie oh, Wade. Hang who on, was, hang on. What did you have family, or do you still have family in Michigan? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Plenty. Plenty. So your I'm parents just... are like the ones who came down where they it's were actually ex- leaving a lot of their family when they came to Louisiana? See, like I told you, my mom's family's from Birmingham, but yeah. as a lot of people did, uh, there are a lot of her family migrated to Michigan. So she had okay. family in Detroit, too. Okay. And my dad's family is from a much smaller part town, um, Kalamazoo. The Cal- you know, oh, yeah. Cal- where Derek Peter, yeah. the hometown. Derek Jeter. Yes. But um, so small town Michigan. So, you know, we've had we still have a lot of family up there. So my dad at one point was when he when I was seriously considering going to um, Michigan or Michigan State, he was like, "Uh, we'll send you up there for your senior year of high school so you can get resident status and pay in-state tuition. Mm -hmm. But I didn't want to do that. Right. Uh, But Ernie Wade, who was the director of um, minority affairs, which is now the Office of Multicultural Affairs at Wake Forest. Mm-hmm. Um, I met him at a college fair at the Superdome. Oh, okay. And uh, he said, why don't you come up for a minority student weekend? Uh-huh. I was like, mm-hmm. well, he said, no, no, come up. You'll, you'll like it. It's a small campus. Mm-hmm. You know, I think, I think you'd really like it. So I flew up 
and I spent three days on the campus and I really, really enjoyed it. Um, it was, it was so different because I had already visited the two other schools and state schools, obviously much bigger campuses, sure. much different ways of, of, of just navigating that. And Wake Forest just seemed so much more in tune with what I really needed. Um, I went to a small high school. Yeah. Uh, we only had 94 graduates in my class. Okay. Um, so I was used to more of a, an environment where I got to know, I knew my, my teachers. I knew yeah. uh, the, the whole school pretty much. So I started to really like that. And then um, and I applied and then I was accepted. And then it became a decision like Michigan, I ended up ruling out just because it was too big. And then Michigan State, because I asked my dad if it would be okay if I wore my Michigan jerseys in East Lansing. <laughs> and he said that would not be a good idea. <laughs> <laughs> so it, Son, it, do you want to die? <laughs> yeah. I said, you know, but, uh, the money is better. They're offering me more money, but I still want to root for my guys. Yeah. He's like, no, that, that won't work. So I said, well, I really like Wake Forest. And then um, what was interesting was, you know, Daniel Johnson, um, yeah. one of my closest friends, he went up and visited. And then another person from our class, Jennifer Jenkins, um, she went up and visited. So they both liked it. Mm-hmm. And so then it was like, okay, well, now there's three of us. Yeah. So it'll, it'll be like I have some people from home that are going with me. Yeah. And um, that makes it a little bit more of an, a transition that I can do. So, you know, we all decided to do it together and just say, well, let's go to Wake Forest. And um, never look back. And it was one of the greatest decisions of my life. Yay. <laughs> what, was, what, was the, uh, what was the composition of the schools um, racially that you grew up in? And it was Wake you know, a difference or was Wake similar to what you'd? Oh, you know, Wake was different because New Orleans is, is um, at the time, was about 67% um, African-American. Mm-hmm. And the school system, the public school system, was over 80% African-American. Right. So, like, the racial breakdown was, like, mostly African-American, then Vietnamese, mm. and then um, Caucasians. So it was like, um, but, I mean, I, I was used to uh, environments where I mixed a lot because, um, the church that we went to, we were Presbyterians, and we were the only, <laughs> we were the only black family in our church. Uh, <laughs> so, so, you know, I was used to that. And then uh-huh. I just, um, and I went to a, a couple of, uh, you know, I went to a lot of programs, and, and I was in the Boy Scouts and stuff, where the composition was always just, those were much more where I was in the, the minority on those groups. Sure, yeah. So, you know, I, I had it both ways. I, you know, so coming to Wake Forest was not a culture shock mm-hmm. because I had been in situations plenty of times where I was the only or one of the few um, black people in a room. Sure. So the, the biggest shock was just North Carolina was very different from Louisiana. How so? Um, you know, in Louisiana, people tend to be very talkative to you about everything. <laughs> Um, nobody's a stranger, uh-huh. and, um, and Wake Forest wasn't that way, you know, I mean, you, 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 it's not that it was unfriendly, but right. it, it's just, it was different, and then food-wise, obviously, it's different, mm-hmm. um, I had, I did not know that things closed, uh, <laughs> <laughs> 
I was not aware of that. I thought things I stayed open happened. all the time. <laughs> I was just used to that. So especially like as I became old enough to to do adult things, yeah. like you know, have a drink, I didn't realize that you had to go to an alcohol beverage control store to get a drink to buy a bottle of cuz here it's you can go to a grocery store or a convenience store or a like their drive up daiquiri shops there's yeah. like it's you just don't even think about it here culturally so right. it was just different and then you know when we go out and they say well everything closes at 1:30 the club closes down at 1:30 and I was like really I don't I don't get that like what do you what do you do after that time where do you go and it was like you go to IHOP. Well, okay. I have to, I have to understand these things now. So, um, it, and just the difference in the types of things that, that I was able to eat. I couldn't, you know, I had, I didn't have a po' boy for <laughs> a long time and explaining to people what that was. Right. You know, it was just it was very difficult. You know, I, my parents sent me a lot of care packages of food, uh -huh. so, so I could uh, have things that I really enjoyed because um, they just weren't available. So you were were you a popular? You must have been a popular person to to visit. Be like, what's like smelling what's cooking or or yes, I you know I love to cook. So when I moved to student apartments for my junior or senior year, uh -huh. and I was cooking all the time. Yeah, yeah. People love to stop by then mm -hmm. uh, because they knew I was making something. So, uh -huh. yeah, I had a lot of guests. Uh, <laughs> I think I was getting used. Uh, <laughs> <on occasion. laughs> like, why are you stopping by right now? Right. Yeah. <laughs> didn't you Didn't you eat already? No. So, because I mean, I knew how to do it. You know, my parents, my dad always told me that you should never be dependent on other people to make you meals. So we, we learned how to cook very young. Mm -hmm. um, that was just part of it. And just growing up here, it's kind of like it's almost unavoidable um, because you start learning about here the Trinity means, you know, it's part of the Creole cooking tradition. So, you know, you go other people, for when they say Trinity, they think Father, Son, and Holy Ghost here right. in New Orleans. I mean, as, as Catholic and religious as the city can be, when they say the Trinity, they're talking about celery, onion, and uh, <laughs> and, and uh, um, a roux. So you just like okay. So um, it's a lot different. So <laughs> oh man, uh, what? Because um, you and I knew each other mostly from pickup ball and refereeing. Yes. Um, what? Uh, what other? And I saw your picture, and I didn't remember. I, but you just posted a picture from you in gospel choir. Mm -hmm. Um. So what what other stuff were you were you doing at Wake? I was Wake TV. Okay. Um, I, had, I had a show. Uh, it's called Deacon Sports Week that I did. Um, it was by yourself you know, like, or with someone else. Co-hosts tended to change from uh -huh. week to week. I was stable, but I had different co-hosts uh -huh. from week to week. Um, and that was our version of Sports Center. So we would wrap up everything that had gone on um, sports wise at Wake Forest. Uh, uh -huh. So that was always fun. Um, as Black Student Alliance, I did that, uh, but I wasn't in a whole bunch of clubs. I mean, it was okay. it, what was, uh, and did you play you know, it I, or no? No. Okay. And and a lot of it was, you know, at the time I didn't realize, um, you know, I I did not realize that I was already starting to go through bipolar disorder. Yeah. 
So um, the impact then was just um, not—it was not something I was aware of. Okay. So it—it it, it, it was definitely impacting and affecting my my college career um, and the way I was dealing with people. And and it, it sometimes it made me a little bit hermit-like. Um, and there would be days where I just kind of kept to myself, either by not even leaving my dorm mm-hmm. uh, room or other things. So. I don't know if I got everything that I, well, I know I didn't get everything that I could have gotten out of um, being uh, in college, Mm -hmm. but I can't, you know, I can't blame myself for that. Sure. Um, You know, I didn't get diagnosed. I was 30 years old. Wow. So, you know, to go through all those things and you look back and and I have relationships still with a lot of um, my professors in my major Mm -hmm. um, and, you know, to to them and I I talked to What was your major? Communications. Did you know my wife, uh, Rebecca Meisenbach? Yes. Okay. I think she needs. I I need to show her a picture of you because she she I think she knows who you are, but it's been a little while. See, but I'm you know I'm in in communications. You may have you could miss me because there was one stretch. Alan Loudon, who mm-hmm. I love. Yeah. No. Uh, and and to this day, I I just like I still I will message him on Facebook pretty frequently. Um, he gave, he, there was a time where I didn't go to his class for three straight weeks. Oh, no. And I was in the middle of kind of like a manic phase. Sure, yeah. And, um, but, you know, again, I didn't know. Right. So I came back and he said, David, you know, he's like, you can miss at the beginning or you can miss at the end, but don't skip in the middle because it <laughs> makes me feel like I'm, like I lost you. Yeah. Like I did something to turn you off. And and I said, oh, I'm sorry. I said I didn't intend to do that. It's like I, I didn't know. And then he, he another um, time I was in his class, and he says, you know, David, you're gonna make it. And I said, yeah, why do you say that? And he said, because you got a lot of asshole in you. <laughs> <laughs> and, I, and at first I thought I was he was insulting me, but I, I understood what he meant. Yeah. And I and I know that I know exactly what he means now. Right, right. Because I do, and I mean you know me. Yeah, I do. Yeah, yeah. But it's not I don't think it's in a bad way. I'm right. just I'm I, I can be a little pernicious, I guess. I right. Know. But I I, I I I just really enjoy that he was always honest with me. Yeah, and, and Mary Dalton, um, same way, very honest, but in a different way. Mary's much more motherly and mm-hmm. approaches things with a lot more care and, and kindness. Yeah, whereas Al's just more straightforward and, mm-hmm. and blunt. But I, 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 I enjoyed being part of that program. I yeah. thought it was a great major, and it it, it helped me find my voice. And I, I never would have gotten into sports uh, if I, as a broadcaster. Um, if it hadn't been for that. Yeah. Because at first when I got to Wake Forest, I thought I was going to be a business major. Mm. Yeah. Accounting told me I wasn't a business major. <laughs> you want to talk about where the a-holes come out. <laughs> 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 Sorry, business majors. Yeah. <laughs> what uh, what did you end up doing uh, after Wake? Uh, the first thing I did, I was a production assistant at W... Uh, What's his, what's his name? Uh, WXLV, uh, Channel Forty Five in in uh, Winston Salem. Okay, is that uh, the uh, ABC affiliate? Yeah. Okay. Yeah, I started there as production. I was I had to be there at five in the morning, and I did the tra- I wrote the traffic updates, and I answered the phones from, and I monitored the uh, radio 
further the fire and the police calls to make sure that nothing, you know, if something interesting happened, I could alert people. Mm-hmm. So that was my first job out of week. And then um, I went over to WXII, Channel 12, the NBC affiliate. Okay. And, um, and I was a uh, full-time production tech there. Uh-huh. Um, and that's where I really, uh, Dave Gorin, who was the, who was not the sports director, but was the weekend anchor at the time. Mm-hmm. Uh, Dave became like a really good mentor for me. Um, he let me shoot stuff, let me go out and get interviews. Um, he let me cover Wake Forest games on the weekends. Yeah. Um, and, and that was really cool. Um, and then I got, I, because of the Hearst company, which owned WXI, also owned the NBC affiliated New Orleans, I transferred from there to the NBC affiliated New Orleans, WDSU. Uh-huh. And um, that's where I really started to put my tape together. Stan Verrett, who yeah. was at ESPN now. Yeah. Um, Stan was uh, the weekend anchor there. Awesome. And um, so Stan and I got really close. Um, and he you know, let me do a lot of stuff. Uh, helped me work on my uh, presence on set. Um, and from there, I got my first on-air gig at... KLAX in Alexandria, Louisiana. So what's the what year are we talking right now? Um, KLAX was in 2000. Okay. That's 2000. a lot of that's a lot of quick transitions there for you. You know, TV is like that. Yeah. You know, cuz you you're trying to to move up that the, the, I was trying to get on air. Mm-hmm. So everything I was trying to do was get me closer to being on air. Yeah. Um, so like I said, so 97 I was at XLV, um, 98 to 99 I was at XII, and then uh, 99 to 2000, I was at uh, Kalex, mm-hmm. and then um, and uh, Kalex was just, I mean, uh, 2000, uh, early 2000 when I got to Kalex, um, and uh, I was shooting on Super VHS. Hmm. I was covering <laughs> covering um, high school basketball, and and because um, I got there in the spring. So, uh, you know, I was covering high school basketball games, primarily softball. Um, I did the Louisiana State Softball Championship. Mm-hmm. Um, it was it was like being – it was – the equipment we had at Wake TV was better than what I had at, at KLAX. <laughs> and um, while I was at KLAX, I got a call from a friend of mine, and she told me that there was a job that was available in Massachusetts, at, in, um, in Springfield, Massachusetts. So for me, being a basketball person – I'm like, oh, Springfield Hall of Fame is there? Great. Let me put my tape together. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, I put my tape together. It took about three months for me to negotiate a deal. And this was like my first professional contract because every other time I was just an employee. Yeah. So this was a contract and I had to negotiate it. And my negotiation, the, the hold up in the negotiation was two things. Uh-huh. Number one, was my travel, uh, my tra- um, my moving expenses, because they didn't want to give me a bunch of money to move. Mm-hmm. So I was like, I don't, I, I, I need you to. So we transferred my moving money to my temporary housing allowance. Okay. The other one was negotiating my name. Okay. Because they did not like the name David Grubb. Uh huh. So <laughs> they they offered me names. Oh, please tell me what these are. <laughs> <laughs> There were three um, names that they offered me. Um, David Johnson. Uh-huh. He was like, uh, no, I know that guy. <laughs> <laughs> um, um, David Green. Uh-huh. And um, 
David Thompson. And I didn't like it. You could any have been the them. Skywalker. You could have been a classmate. Yeah. But they weren't, they weren't me. So I just said, well, I'll be, I said, I'll go with my middle name. And they said, what's your middle name? And he said, it's Mitchell. And I said, okay, that works. And I was going by the rule that, you know, I said, so it's Dave Mitchell, not David Mitchell. Uh-huh. Because sportscasters only have three syllables. That's oh. my. Dan Patrick. Keith, well, Keith Olbermann, but. But, but that's the eyes are, Yeah, Stan Barrett. Yep. See? Yeah. You know, Bill Pito. These, yeah, know, these I, are all the guys <laughs> who were big at the time. Craig Kilborn. Yeah. It was all three syllables, so yeah. I could not be David Mitchell. Mm. So I said, I'm Dave Mitchell. That's what I'll okay. be. So they wrote that into my contract that that was my name. So um, I got up there, and the craziest thing, I get up there, um, I meet the photog mm -hmm. um, for our department. Yeah. The day after we meet, he dies. And it was, everything was thrown into a loop. I mean, he had a heart attack, guy was in his 40s. Oh, my. And he, he just, overnight, you know, guy I just met, who was supposed to be, you know, the guy who's going to show me around and break me in, and he, he passed away, and it was just, it was devastating to the department, yeah. and it changed my career because now I was on my own in a lot of ways because we didn't have a dedicated sports photographer, yeah. So I didn't have somebody to really show me around and 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 change, um, you know, show me the ropes. So I was doing a lot more stuff on my own, and uh, we ended up, uh, I ended up being there for eighteen months. And, um, and now I had, uh, and, and it was great. I mean, I, I had a really good time. I got to interview Isaiah Thomas the night he got inducted into the hall of fame, Pat Summit, um, Jack Ramsey. I got to meet, um, um, Dolph Shays. <laughs> um, I mean, so, and, and people at the time were like, uh, you know, who's Dolph Shays? And I'm like, if you don't know, you're not a basketball <laughs> person. And I did get to interview David Thompson. Um, I had a great conversation with him. He was the nicest, kindest man. Mm -hmm. I got to interview Dr. J, um, and he was that was my biggest fanboy experience at the time. Because um, I entered after you know we were all allowed. You got five minutes with the doctor alone. Oh, so I did my five minutes. You know, I set my camera up. I did my five minutes, uh -huh. and uh, when we were finished, he walked over to me and he shook my hand. And he said, "You did a very, a very good job, son." Now I don't know if he said that to everybody. Right, I, and I don't care if he did. Right, yeah, but he said it to me, yeah. and so oh. immediately I go to the car, I get on the phone, and I call my dad, and I'm like, "Doctor J said I did a good job. Uh -huh. Doctor J said I did a good job." Yeah, and my dad's like, "Calm down. That's you're supposed to do a good job." I'm like, but dad, it's Doctor J. It's like it's it's okay. It's calm down. So I mean. It was just That's it was awesome. a, it was a great experience just from a basketball standpoint, I, uh, and and me, that being my 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 true love as far as sports goes, mm -hmm. you know, I got to interview Jerry Tarkanian, yeah, and that was his, his last year at Fresno State. I got to talk to Paul Pierce two weeks after the stabbing. Oh, wow! I mean, and he still had a black eye, and, and um, you know, he said was wearing bandages, obviously, on certain parts of his face from from the assault, and it was like Chris Heron was on the yeah. Celtics at the time, Antoine Walker. <laughs> so it was and Rick Pitino. And like that was the first time I'd ever gotten myself on the air nationally because I asked Pitino a question after a game and it got carried on um, Nesson, the New England Sports Network. Yeah. And I was like, oh, I've, this is it now. This It gets no bigger than this. And then Stan had started at ESPN 
um, shortly after I got to Massachusetts. Mm-hmm. So I called Stan, and we watched the Super Bowl, the Giants Ravens Super Bowl, huh. at his at his apartment in West Springfield. Both and he probably fell me. asleep during the game. <laughs> yeah, it was, ter- it was a terrible game. So, but but what's awesome is like now Stan, who's you know the king of LA for ESPN at the time, he's living in an apartment in West um, West Hartford, Connecticut. Yeah, and. Um, he's cooking me dinner on his George Foreman grill. So, <laughs> it's like, you know, it, it was just those things were really, really fun. Um, the things that I, I loved about that job. But I loved shooting football in the middle of the winter, mm-hmm. you know, you know, having my hands feel like they almost freeze off. Yeah. Um, it's just it was a great experience. I got to go up to Bristol with Stan once. You know what, though? Um, Hang on. You, you, but you see, you missed that experience. Because you left Detroit when you were four, you would know yes. what that was like. <laughs> yes. See, my parents denied me all these great things. I know. It's all their fault. <laughs> but here's my New Orleans, Massachusetts story. Okay. What? what uh, okay. Sorry. No. Go ahead. I have something this, to ask you. But go ahead. All right. So let, let me just give you the New Orleans, Massachusetts difference. I'm yeah. at. Um, I'm. I'm. I'm at hanging out with our sports director, and he says, "Dave, there's this restaurant and." it's supposed to be really good and they cook New Orleans style food. Do you want to go? And usually I would say no, because I've been burned enough times in my life. <laughs> that if I see something that says Cajun right. or New Orleans style, I'm like, no, it's going to be bad, but yeah. he's my boss. So I'm like, okay, yeah, let's go down there. So the place is called the big Mamou, which has already thrown me <laughs> off. <laughs> All right. <laughs> so we sit down at the table and I look at the hot sauces. There's no crystal hot sauce. And if you're from New Orleans, you know that crystal hot sauce is the standard hot sauce of choice. There is no Tabasco on the table, which if you're also from New Orleans, you know Tabasco does, is, does not consider itself a hot sauce. So if you ever see somebody from Tabasco and you tell them that that's a hot sauce, they'll, they'll, they'll punch you in the face. <laughs> so then it's a pepper sauce. Okay. okay. But neither one of those is on the table, so I'm already a little... You know, right. So I order a po' boy. Uh-huh. It comes to me on an Italian roll. <laughs> po' boys are served on French bread, crusty French bread, uh-huh. and this thing comes to me on an Italian roll, and it is dressed improperly. Mm-hmm. Properly dressed po' boys: tomato, shredded lettuce, pickles, mayonnaise. Mm-hmm. That's it. Yeah. No, just lettuce, just tomato. No pickles, no mayonnaise. So they've already messed me up. Yeah. I, I got a side order of gumbo. Mm-hmm. The gumbo was served without rice, which is also a problem. <laughs> so I eat this stuff because I'm not trying to be rude. Yeah. And I tell when we leave, I tell my boss, I say, we're never going here again. Mm-hmm. At least I'm not. You're never going to bring me here again. Yeah. Fast forward two weeks. Taste of Springfield. As many cities do, they have these big things in the middle of downtown where you all the restaurants are there. and. Mm-hmm peddling their wares and trying to get people to, to come eat yeah. their food. So I walk up to a different tent. Yeah. And I'm getting something, and the lady says, hey, where are you from? And I said, I'm from New Orleans. And she says, have you ever been to the Big Mamou? And I said, yeah, it sucked. I'll never go there again. And she says, I own the Big Mamou. <laughs> I knew that was good. <laughs> So my my only response is to go, I'm sorry, and I left. I just walked away. 
I, I was I was hoping that you were gonna pull up a, a, a like one of those cone microphones that they use for that the uh, <laughs> that the cheer use and be like I said it sucked. <laughs> I mean I saw her I saw her eyes drop, so I felt really bad. Right. But how was I supposed to know? Right. Right. And I mean you know I'm sorry it wasn't good. Right. Was, yeah. You 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 offended me. You right. offended my New Orleans sensibilities. So, <laughs> wow. So 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 she's not a friend, is what you're saying. You you know you guys don't hang out. No, if I ever go back to Springfield, I I don't think they, my picture might be on the wall of the big man who say <laughs> not serve this man or spit in his food, right, whichever yeah. <laughs> you choose to do. But it's not like Springfield was the haven for great food anyway. Sure. Yeah. I mean. <laughs> what, um, what I was thinking is, this backtracks a little bit, but what was, uh, what was it like going back to New Orleans as, an, I mean, 23 or so, right? But, uh, so I would say a semi-adult. <laughs> but what was it like to be there, you know, making a living in the town that you grew up in? It was tough because I was going through, you know, I was going through my episodes mm -hmm. and you, you're not really knowing what you're experiencing. So I didn't know why I was unhappy a lot. Yeah. And I thought maybe it was because I just hadn't gotten to where I wanted to be in my career. Uh -huh. So you start thinking, well, maybe I'm just until I get to where I'm happy in my career, I'm just going to be unhappy. And that's how it's going to work. Yeah. Um, but. It was interesting because New Orleans is, is a small town masquerading as a city. Right. So you know everybody mm -hmm. and everyone knows you. So I couldn't go anywhere and not run into people that I either went to high school with or with the parents of people that I went to high school with or whatever. So Were your siblings still around in town or were they wherever they were going to No, my brother was in um, – my brother was in college – and my sister had just, um, let's see, my sister was just starting her freshman year at the University of Alabama when I got back. Okay. So, yeah, so she was, she, she you know, so she wasn't around that much. So I would, see, I would see them mostly during, like, holidays. So it was mostly me. And then um, my dad, at the time, he was living in... Uh, um, he, had, he was living, my parents had, had uh, divorced, and so he was uh, At what, what age was that? They got, yeah, uh, they separated my senior year. Oh, wow. Yes, uh, of, of college. Like, I found out about it, what, the summer? I was in summer school? Yeah. So, oh, wow. Yeah. And so, that we was tough. You were almost out, and, it's, and that was over. Yeah. Oh. Yeah, it was tough. So, wow. so coming back, you know, I didn't see my dad a lot. I didn't run into him very much. Yeah. So I saw I, I mostly would go, you know, keep my mom company because I didn't like her being by herself at the house a lot. Sure. Yeah. So, so it was, but I would go a lot of times, like you know, because my closest friends now were either in North Carolina or other places. Sure. Um, you know, I spent a lot of time by myself, but or with work friends. Right. Um, and when you work in TV, your hours are so weird. Right. So you tend to only hang out with other people. It's like being a waiter. 
Mm-hmm. When you wait tables, you hang out with waiters. So yeah. when you're in TV, you tend to hang out with TV people. But I had some really good friends in TV, so people that I still talk to to this day. So that that's that was the good part of it. And then I would go back to, you know, the basketball junkie part of me. I would go back to my old high school and talk to my coach, mm-hmm. and um, I'd watch games, and and he'd let me in the locker room at halftime, and he'd mm-hmm. say, "What'd you see?" And I'd tell him what I saw, and he said, "Tell the guys." Yeah. And so you know that was always cool. Did you say, uh, "Can I can I slam this locker in anger?" Is that all right? Like, that wasn't my style. <sighs> you know, my my thing was you know more of just very being very technical. Sure. Like, yeah. You're not guarding the post this way. You're you're standing on the wrong side, or mm-hmm. you're on offense. You're turning your head, yeah. stuff like that. It was just I was always tech. He, he, my coach used to tell me whenever when I first started playing for him, he's like, "You think it so much better than you play it." <laughs> and, and I said, "You're probably right." Yeah. <laughs> and I think anybody who played with me in pickup or intramurals would probably say the same thing too. So. <laughs> but I do have two intramural basketball championships. So, so do I. There we go. <laughs> <laughs> what was and I still have one of my championship shirts. I let my daughter wear it now. <laughs> it's like I think they were. I think they were instructed to be thrown out. Uh, uh, so I may have by my wife. Um, one of them didn't really fit all that well. Anyway, but I still had them. I had those are my my. Uh, did you get the Did you get the Nike ones when Max I, upgraded to the Nike? Yes, I got the the first one was a uh, ninety five. And that was a team that I was on with um, uh, Zahair. And um, that also had, I don't know if you remember Brian Ulrich? Yes! Um, he was on that team, Lou Amoroso, um, Doug Peacock. I remember Doug. Um, and Chris Lacazio. And, I remember uh, Chris Lacazio. Yeah. So, like, we were all on a team for the first two years. And we won it the second year. Like, we were put, whatever division we were put in, we won it. And so we got like the, our shirts were yellow and they were like very basic. I mean, it was, yes. I loved it, but it was, it was that one. And then my senior year, I won a, one of the co-rec championships with a, with a band team. Um, and, uh, we had, and that one was like white and it had like really yes. cool graph. Is that the one? Yes. That's the one. Okay. So we had that one. That shirt was gigantic. I don't know why I had such a large shirt, but. Because I went that year, I won the Corec on a different in a different set. Yeah. Because our Corec team had it was me, Horatio, uh-huh. and my, my boy Horatio course, Cotton, yeah. um, Yusef. Yeah. And um, we also had Ray Animal Holland. What? <laughs> and uh, she still on the women's team at that point? No, she. <laughs> That's so unfair. <laughs> and Stacy Hawes. <laughs> oh my gosh, do you remember what wasn't? Yeah, both of those were women's team. That's so. You remember the year? There was a year when um Barry Canty won. The yes. Okorek, and I was like, you were just on the men's team. Like, this doesn't this doesn't count. Like, how is this fair? But his you, team was you, stacked. Yeah, but you but you worked the system right way. I I appreciate that. I can I can respect. Well, we had that. to. We had to. <laughs> and Amir and Ray would get in fights because we both wore number thirty one. <laughs> <laughs> and because I wore thirty one because Dave Winfield was my favorite player when I was a kid. Oh yeah. So I wore thirty one on everything. Uh huh. And Ray wore thirty one because that was her number. Yeah, because yeah. So, <laughs> she was a college basketball player. <laughs> right. So whenever the jerseys would come out and it'd be a thirty one, we'd be like arguing over it. So I had to start deferring to Ray. 
Because Horatio and I also had a thing where I wore 31 and he wore 13. Oh, yeah, I remember him being at 13, yeah. So, because <laughs> we, we were like attached to the hip, and so yeah. you know, you know, it was it was it was funny. We beat the team we beat for the championship that year. Willie Lamb, um, it was on the other team, and um, like Willie was just a, a monster. You know, I mean, mm-hmm. I think Willie was like six five, two eighty. You know, and just you know, they were like, David, you get Willie. I said, oh, thanks, <laughs> yeah. thanks. The only, but it's like as long as we can pass it out to Haas. Right. For four pointers, right? Yeah, like, <laughs> that. Yeah, I'm telling you. Oh, yeah. it's like we never went for twos. It was like the guys we never wanted to shoot. Right. Yeah. Let's get it to Ray. Get it to Stacy. Well, remember Let we you couldn't. The guys couldn't shoot in the paint. Right. So, so right. You had to. That was. I remember watching like trying to jump out of the paint, or you take a layup, and like the first every every game five minutes in, some dude would take a layup and be like, no. No, can't do that. I see the good thing is because I mean, as also being a three-time um, official of the year. Dang it! You won it two more times, and or I had I was a two-time. I think we shared one year. Okay, because I have one for football. Oh, okay. I didn't. I only did basketball. See, I have one for football. Oh, I have one for basketball, oh. and I got one for um, softball. Okay. So, well, there you go. Damn. So. I got two for basketball, so I'll, I, I feel good. But see, I was, but see, I'll, you, you were a supervisor too, right? Uh, I think I might have done that one of, I did not pick any of the awards though. Don't, no favorite. No, 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 I think because I was a supervisor the last, I got, I got a supervisor twice. I was a supervisor for the last two years. So I, I think you, I thought you were supervisor the last year. I think it's senior, possible, I thought you were but- Man, I it, if it, if I was, it wouldn't be surprising because I did a billion things my senior year. I barely remember any of it. <laughs> the only thing I remember, the thing about that, I remember those is Max would always get us a mountain fried chicken for the awards ceremony. And by the time we would get to the awards, the mountain fried chicken would be cold because the potato wedges would be cold. Mm-hmm. You know? So I love the mountain fried chicken. I always oh, had. Yeah, yeah. You know, but the potato wedges, you know how it is. Once potato wedges get cold, they're no good. Right. They're, they're, they're done. Yeah, but I'd be like Max, get the awards, man. Oh, we can yes. eat this chicken. Not <laughs> chicken. It's not greasy. I know. The... Oh, love that slogan. Good, so good, so good. I, there was one game I remember. Um, you were refing, and I remember you told me I was I was bombing shots as I as I tended to do, but I was missing I was missing a lot of them, and you just said you're like you're shooting everything you're shooting is flat, and I was like. Yeah, and I'm like, yeah, probably. I don't know, but then like in the second half, I caught fire, and I and I we didn't win that game, but like part of it was, I remember I was like, it's like Grub told me, stuff flat. Put some I can air still this. see your shot. I can still see your shot the way you shoot your jump shot. And there were days, the days that you were off, it would be because it's always it's always from your legs. Yeah. It's always from your legs when you when you add your legs together, you would get up. I mean, there was good elevation every time when you shot your jump shot, when you were in your rhythm. Yeah. And then when you weren't, you could see there'd be like either too much lean in your body or it just, the jump or short. Yeah. It just, because when it was on, you looked the exact same every time. Yeah. The exact same. That and I'm, I'm like one of those guys. <laughs> gets, I'll have a good game and then the next game it'll be inexplicably, I won't hit anything. Yeah. But I could always rebound and I could always block a shot. That's right. That's, the, that's what I could always do. Yeah. 
That's cool. But I, used to, I mean, I used to love, I, I loved playing pickup. I love. Oh, me too. Those, those man, Fridays at three. That gym was so sweaty. Oh, stink. Yeah. Just. <laughs> The worst is when you played skins and then you lost and then you had the weight and then all of a sudden you were shirts again and you're like, I gotta put this back on. Like, <laughs> <laughs> this thing's cold now. <laughs> and then there are people who you'd be like, don't come in the gym. Like, yeah. Red, yeah. I hate when Red would come in the gym because yeah. I knew he was gonna want to fight. And right. I'm like, I don't want to fight today. I just want to play basketball. Yeah. And I would love it when like Tony or Jerry would show up. Mm-hmm. Or, um, you know, Mark Lucas was awesome. Yeah. Mark Lucas was a really good guy, and I loved it when he would come in the gym because he wouldn't treat you any differently. Yeah. He would treat you like if you hit a shot, I, like I keep that as a memory because one time I came, me, I came across on a screen. Uh-huh. He hit me right off the screen. I went up, hit the jump shot. Yeah. And he was like, good shot. And he hit me on the ass, and I was like, Mark <laughs> Lucas did that. That's my my one memory of playing with someone was was with Rusty LaRue and he had uh he threw me a behind the back pass on a break. He totally didn't need to, but he did. And uh and I did ha- and I remember like it's like please go in layup and it, and it went in and same thing he high fived me and I was like that's that's awesome. <laughs> that's so cool. <laughs> the be- there was one summer school session and Muggsy Bogues had come back cuz he was finishing his degree. And so they were playing in the gym and they asked us if we wanted to come because my room, me and Horatio stayed next to um, uh, William Stringfellow. Mm-hmm. You remember? Oh, yeah. And, uh, and uh, um, Steve. Um, oh, why am I forgetting Steve's last Goolsby. name? Goolsby, yes. yes. So it's next door. So Goolsby and String are like, hey, you guys want to come play with us? We're going up to the gym. Chris King is going to be there. Muggsy's going to be there. So the guys are going to come, and so it's the whole team is there, and, and me and Horatio, mm-hmm. and we're the only non-players there. Yeah. So the first thing Ghouls tells us is, don't shoot. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Basically. He's like, you're not here to shoot. We're yeah. letting you run. Right. But don't shoot. Yeah. So we're like, okay, well, all right. So that's the job. Mm-hmm. Like, unless you're under the basket and right. you catch a rebound, yeah. don't shoot. But it was cool just running back up and down the court because it's like Tim was playing point guard. You know, his shirt, short shirt, shorts are on backwards as he does. And, uh, you know, he's running, he's playing point. Uh-huh. And Bugs is doing, you know, going all between his legs and dribbling all over the place. And he's a much better shooter than you, than you ever really thought that he was. Yeah. But I mean, it's like, I don't belong with these people. Right, yeah. And they're allowing me into this world. Yeah. So I'm just gonna ride this out, oh, yeah. you know? <laughs> and that was that was really really cool. And I don't again, I don't think that happens at at Chapel Hill. I don't think that happens yeah. at at um, NC State if we had been in those places because yeah. you know they don't let just it would have been private amongst all those alumni of that right. program. But it it never felt like they were inaccessible. Yeah. Um, in that regard, so I I, I really like that. I, well, I, and I, well, I wonder if that's the case. I, I bet that that's. I would say. That I wonder if they would do that now. You feel like those guys are blocked off now? I pro- I would think they would be right. I mean, if the facilities are much better, just athletics now. Right, right. I I I, I would imagine you can't go back. Yeah. I, I, the world has changed so much for college athletics. Yeah. And at Wake Forest. Yeah. Um, you know. Uh, 
I, I've had a I've had conversation with people sometimes, and they say, "Well, you know, is it how different is it than when you were there?" And I say, "Well, when I visit, it's always different now. Sure. It's, there's a new building, there's a right. new thing. It's not the same." Yeah. But you know, my experience was my experience, and I got to love my experience. And these right. kids will find their own. But there's always going to be some commonality. There'll be something that that we share as part of that family. Yeah. Um, and 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 I still, you know. I, I speak so highly of the school, right. even though the tuition is more high than I could speak of the school. <laughs> sure, yeah. Yeah. Uh, but, you know, I, I think we did have something special. I think we did have yeah. something that was really interesting and, and great and, and, and intimate. I, yeah. I don't think it's intimate anymore. I, yeah, I don't, I, I don't have an answer for that. I, I, I'm kind of with you on that. I feel like we, were, we kind of got, we were the last group or one of the last groups that, because remember the they adopted the IBM thing, right? Uh, for, Big uh, for when we were seniors, mm -hmm. and so that was a, an immediate bump in tuition. That I remember when that started to happen, I was thinking, you know, if that happened when I was in high school, I don't know that I would have really looked very hard at Wake, because I remember that that was part of the thing was it was not that expensive at all for out of state. Um, I mean, or for anybody really. When yeah. It was were, always on the best values list. Yeah. Yeah. Even though it was a private school. And so it was just really, and I, I mean, that's not even remotely the same now. So it's like, huh. I, I no, there's no way my parents would have been able to afford to, to help me go. Yeah. Um, at the, the, the way it is now. Yeah. And, and I hope the school, I, I think that the president has made a commitment um, to 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 make it to keep the school as accessible as possible, but there's, I mean, at that price point now, it's it's you can't be as inclusive as it used to be. You just can't. It's not possible. You can try, and I hope that they do try. I hope they they try really hard. But yeah, I think what I think you're right. I think once all that stuff started changing, because you saw that freshman class came in and they had the messaging with each other all of a sudden, and yeah. they could talk directly to each other wherever they were on campus. It changed a lot of things because for us, if you wanted to go talk to somebody, you got up off your butt and you walked across campus. Right, yeah. <laughs> you went down the hall or you went like two floors away and like knocked on their door. Yeah. <laughs> and I mean, and that's, or it'd be just these long congregations of the time where we'd be in one person's room. Right. And, and just doing really stupid stuff. I remember, remember playing Tecmo Bowl. Uh, and, and um, Johnson, and then again in, I think it was Poteet. Yeah, we had the, we had the Tech Bowl tournament that we would be playing, and guys would just leave the dorm room open, and your your, your game's up. You got to go play. Right. Yeah. And just because uh, it was in Zaire's room sophomore year. Yeah. yeah. So it was like so I remember going up in there, and and I remember Mark Sneed, and I mean, <laughs> just there's so there's just. I don't think they did that stuff after that time. Right, I mean, yeah. we were we were a little bit naive in that oh, regard, sure. and and then and then the thing that too is like now when you go back to the football games where they move the students and they're not on. I, I liked being on the other side of the field. I liked mm -hmm. being, you know, right in front of that riser where the cheerleaders were, and and you'd be, you know, we were sitting in the middle and you in the band sitting right there yeah. to our left. Yeah, yeah, and um. And all that's different now. It's just it's just different. It doesn't. It's not the same because they need to get donors. I understand that they're trying to remain competitive. I understand all those things, but yeah. 
it's just different. I'm not going to say better or worse. I just say it's different. <laughs> oh boy That's we're cool. old I know we really are that was so long ago it's a good time but it just that's the thing it flashes by and you're just like it just seems some, some days it feels like it was just yesterday and then in a year and a half it's going to be 20 years oh just over a year it'll be 20 years since we graduated yeah oh my gosh that's crazy what's um I don't want to keep you here too much longer but what was the uh you are so how, wait so how did let's 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 kind of uh, go back a little bit how did you end up back in uh louisiana cuz we we last left you off you were in um uh, Massachusetts. yeah so i had that's when i had my um my break okay i had a, a breakdown yeah um and i just there was one day um i got in my car and i just started driving and uh i drove to a friend's house mhm um, I drove like 14 hours straight, ended up at a friend's house, and uh, she called my mother and told her I was there. Uh, my mom got me to go back to North, to, to Massachusetts and, and go leave the right way, you know, to go talk to everybody and, mm. and, and kind of exit the proper way. Sure. Uh, and I came back to New Orleans, and so this is late... Uh, um, mid mid two thousand two, so um, so twenty seven, twenty eight, something like that in that range. Yeah, no, twenty five, twenty five, okay. yeah, twenty seven, yeah. I forget yeah. when the year I was born. <laughs> so I come back, uh huh, and I took a couple weeks, and this is the thing, you know, and part of this is, you know, I think just you know, people never want to believe that something's wrong with you sure um and i don't think that's unique to my family or anybody else's family i think that people think that there's a way to, for you to be okay that doesn't involve anything else yeah and so i think my parents thought that i was homesick or just you know or pressure yeah um and it was you know it, between between January of 2001 and December of 2002, I survived two suicide attempts. Oh my gosh! Yeah, um, and I had a couple of other ones that were close to, mm-hmm. you know, but not. I hadn't gotten to the point where I was actually in jeopardy. Yeah, and my parents were aware of those. Yeah. Um, still, nobody was like, maybe you should go see a doctor. So I just went back to the process of, okay, well, let's start working again. Mm-hmm. That's what I know how to do, so I'll go to work. Yeah. And I couldn't go into TV right then because my TV rep was kind of now a little bit messed up because I just walked off a job. Right. So I got into PR doing politics, and um, I worked on a couple campaigns. I worked for Ray Nagin. <laughs> he ran for mayor, <laughs> and he won. And so, but then Ray, as he did to a lot of people, promised things and didn't deliver. Mm-hmm. Um, I ended up working for the Louisiana De- um, State uh, Democratic Committee, helping Kathleen Blanco get elected governor. So she was our first uh, woman governor. Um, 
and then I, I ran a couple of local campaigns, mm-hmm. um, and I ended up going into advertising because somebody gave me a referral. They're like, "Look, we like the way you write. Mm-hmm. You should go into advertising." Yeah. So I worked um, for an advertising agency for about a year, um, and I had another episode, um, and then I was it was then it was two thousand and uh, early two thousand five. And I was working uh, freelance for the person who gave my first job um, in politics. And I had a breakdown. She came to visit me at home. She took, first she told me, just go home. I went home. She came down, sat with me and my mother. And she said, you got a problem. You got to go see somebody. I don't know what it is, but you need to go talk to somebody. Mm-hmm. And um, I had just started dating the woman who is now my wife. Mm-hmm. Um we had been dating for about two weeks, and I got diagnosed that week um, by a doctor. Um, said you got bipolar one, and uh, so the first person I told was my girlfriend. Yeah. And I said, you know, I said Desiree, if you don't want to stay, I understand because I have no idea what this is going to be like, yeah. and I don't want to make you get involved with something if you don't know what it's going to be like. And here we are um, 11 years later, and we've still been together. So, you know, she's been a huge factor in me being well. Yeah. Uh, and and uh, since then, you know, it's just been, you know, it's been, you know, up and down, uh, you know, as, as part of the process. Uh, you know, I went through Hurricane Katrina, yeah. <laughs> which, <laughs> which was obviously a life changer. Um, I came back to New Orleans and I started working for the um, Algiers Charter School Association, which is now the largest charter management organization in Louisiana. Um, I did two years with them as a, as their director of communications. I did a good job there, um, and the, the State Department of Education went, came after me, and they said, we want you to be the deputy director. I said, cool. Um, and my boss at ACSA was like, yeah, take that. Go ahead. You've done everything you can do for us. Yeah. You know, that's a much better job. Go ahead and go. And then the first day I arrived in Baton Rouge, um, they told me that the person who was supposed to, that they hired for director, decided that he didn't want the job. So I was being promoted on my first day. <laughs> so I got no a promotion and like raise <laughs> on my first day. I was like, great, bonus. And, uh, <laughs> which, but then my assistant, who was also up for the director job, she didn't get it. So she quit. And so I was back to having just me, and uh, but I had that job for about nine months, and then Bobby Jindal decided that I wasn't Republican, so I didn't need to be the director. So he made me the deputy again. The first and, uh, of many bad decisions. You know, Bobby Jindal. So, um, and then after that, I just got out of, I didn't want to work in government anymore, because I was like, if, if that's what gets you out of your position, it's yeah. just because the governor just doesn't like you. Right. That's not for me. So I went into business for myself, mm-hmm. and that's where I was for up until till this year. Yeah. You and I, I, you, I think I saw that you, you were at Southern for like a short period. Was that the like a previous? Yes, yeah, so, yeah, Southern University of New Orleans, um, and that, that. Oh yeah, that was for a year and a half. But I was still doing my freelance stuff on the side mm-hmm. because I didn't trust that job. <laughs> and now Southern uh, Suno, as it's called, is a. Uh, Suno's in a lot of trouble. 
It's in a lot of trouble. So it's just, it was just one of those bad situations. You know, and and you've seen this. There are a lot of HBCUs yeah. that are ch- having trouble dealing with the new realities right. of the world. That kids have choices and kids have expectations right. of what their college experience is supposed to look like. And when you don't provide that for them, there becomes a lot of tension on a campus. Yeah. And our chancellor was not very good at, at managing that. He was not good at, I mean, we didn't have a library. We didn't have a student center. We didn't, our cafeteria wasn't open on the weekends. Our athletes didn't have um, access to meals on the weekends. And the coaches were paying for some of their travel um, expenses out of their own pocket. I mean, I had to front, I went on a road trip with our volleyball team and had to front cash for them to eat. So it was just, I mean, it was, it was a really tough situation to be in. So I was like, I like, I like doing my own stuff. So yeah, that's less stressful. That's really, yeah. It's it's really rough. It's, it's been it, a hell of a ride, I'll say. Well, it's it's the you know I I think we had uh, remember talking about it, or I think you and I had, had direct messaged about the. Was it um, Jason Whitlock talking to um, uh, Stur- uh, Sharp? Um, Shannon Sharp. Shannon Sharp. Was, that was it. Yeah, Shannon Sharp. Yeah, mm-hmm. because he went to uh, Savannah, Savannah State. State and you know HBCU in Georgia and he was and it was, it was like talking I remember them talking about the you know the like here was a guy who became a pro football player and and is like you know done so well for himself and had like no interest in giving back to his alma mater and is like if this guy isn't isn't going to give back then you know what's the hope for everyone else essentially right and it's those all these little perceived slights. You know, yeah. he was talking something about a parking ticket. I remember that in that podcast, he was yeah. saying they wouldn't let me go of a let me go. They they didn't, they almost didn't want to let me walk because of a parking ticket. Yeah. And he said I I, I held that against them, and it's like, you know, <laughs> that's, <I> know <laughs> that's that a, seems a little little petty, doesn't it? <laughs> right, right. It's like that's what they're supposed to do. They issue parking tickets. Right. We, if. It, I, I know a lot of. I didn't have a car my four years, but yeah. I knew a lot of people who got parking tickets at Wake who hated getting the you know their ticket. Yeah. But we, we, you knew when you had parked in the wrong spot. Right, you knew right, what right. you were doing. And um, you know everybody in the shoehorn the the use around the, oh, the yeah. dorms. How many illegal parking jobs were done there on a day to day basis? <laughs> I mean, but it, you're it's there is a a huge gap. Um, I think in what alumni understand um, about what giving means. And also, I think that there's a bad, um, that universities, HBCUs have done a bad job in just um, explaining what the money is going to. Like, I mean, you I mean, you get the stuff from the Wake Will campaign. Yeah. And you see, they'll say it's this many million for renovating the gym, and it's this many million for scholarships, and it's this many million to build new buildings, and it's this many, and... You know, like I'll go to our development director and I said, how much are we asking for? Because it seems like we're just asking in general and people don't in anything. Right. People don't ask and they don't give you money in general. They right. want to know where their money's going. Yeah, yeah. And I think universities have done a bad job of communicating um, how that money is going to be spent. And I think they also don't trust the fact that when that money's given, that it's going to go to where that you said it was going to go to. Right. Because they see these things that go on, and they say, "I just donated for this," 
And why did it go back into the general fund? And, right. and I, I, that that has become a very sore subject for a lot of people. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, I know you see it. I know you, you've dealt with it as, yeah. in the business operations of university because it's it doesn't change from school to school that I talk to. I mean, I'm, yeah. you know, because I mean, our the conference that I work with is comprised entirely of HBCUs. Mm-hmm. So it's Talladega College, yeah. Tougaloo College, mm-hmm. um, Edward Waters College, Philander yeah. Smith, all going through the same things. Yeah, and and Are it's like well, maybe. Is that Division Two? Uh, NAIA. Oh, okay. Wow, small. Oh, really small. Yeah, because no, like only three of the schools have more than a thousand students. Yeah. So these are small programs, and, yeah. and so it's just. But you look at it, and you're just saying, well, maybe it's time to start changing the way you do business. Yeah. But then when you do that, people look at you like you're trying to destroy the tradition of the university or destroy the structure, and it's like. No, I'm, I'm really trying to save it. I really want this place to, to thrive. I want right. I didn't come here to, to not have a job. I came here to do the best thing I can. And mm-hmm. it's just you run into these roadblocks with folks all the time. Yeah. yeah. And, and there's so much, so much turnover because it, it it's really tough to, particularly, I mean, any fundraising job, but I feel like college fundraising just, I mean, it's frustrating. <laughs> you know, I mean, you see presidents change and come and go, and yeah. you know, the, the primary job of a president is to bring money. Yeah, you got all the academic people. Right. I mean, those are, you got a provost, you got a, a, a whatever, or a vice president of academic affairs, or whatever it is that you have. The that's their job. You, you provide the vision, and you go get money. Like you go meet people and get money, and get the alumni excited about giving. Yeah, because I mean, when the national giving rate for HBCUs is under twenty percent. That's that's tragic. Yeah. Because yeah. I mean, how can how can you get grant dollars from other people? You know, like they say, I always people always ask you, whether it's politics or schools or whatever. If you're not willing to give to your own institution, why would I give you any money? Yeah. So. You know. Yeah, that's a fair point. <laughs> no, it's, uh, it's, you, uh, I'm, I always, I'm thinking about like all of the, just like a lot of internal politics that's, mm-hmm. you know, and you just all the stuff and conversations you have with people about these specific issues and you're just, it's like, oh, like I think about it and I'm like, no, it's a Sunday, you know. <laughs> Man, it feels like I have to carry a leather strap so I can bite down. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, to, to hold I myself. I have a towel I could just. Go Jerry Tarkanian for a sec if I, if I needed to. Oh, man. Can we talk about Prince? <laughs> yeah, yeah. Yeah, I was like, should we save that for another time or shall we Shall we get to... We just have to get something in on Prince. Yeah, yeah. To, to lift the mood again. We just what, went down. So what, um, what was your... Had, for, did you ever get to see him live? Yes, I did. All right, good. Yes, I when did. Was, when did you get to see him? 1997. 1997. Okay. It was a so birthday was he, present. Was he, he was in Greensboro. Was he the, okay, so was he still, was he like the artist or whatever? Moniker? It was the Emancipation Tour. Okay. So he was still the artist. Uh-huh. And uh, it was a gift from the girl that I was dating at the time, and we went together. And it was one of the most amazing shows I'd ever seen in my life. 
he did two encores and um i mean it's just what was the what what was the um what was the playlist was it was he was he going it's deep or was he was he sticking with some hits here and there i mean he started he started with you know the stuff from the, the that double album yeah. the emancipation album so but then the the second part of the set was the old stuff he did a really great medley of the older stuff and then he played he Oh, he did this amazing thing where he teased us. He, he the lights went down. It's him at the piano, mm-hmm. and he starts playing the first couple of chords to "Darling Nikki." Ooh. But he wouldn't sing the song, <laughs> so he just kept starting it. Uh huh. And he wouldn't sing it, and it was just oh, because I just. But that was at that phase where he wouldn't. He he didn't want to sing. You know, he was getting more um, into his religious yeah. stuff, yeah. so he was just teasing us with that, and I just. But it, it was just, I got it, and I enjoyed that he was playing with me uh, So yeah. as, a, as an audience member. So he still had that. And there was a part where he invited people up on the stage to dance with the band. And it was like, so there was this line of people going up. And I, I was sitting way too far away to get yeah. down there. Uh-huh. But Horatio was at that concert. Uh-huh. And he was sitting down on the floor. And he was the next to last person when they cut off. He was the, the people on stage. He was, so, so he's he standing on the stage. steps. Oh. And he's getting ready to get on the stage. And they were like, nope, that's it. Oh. And, I'm, and I'm like yelling from, you know, right, distance yeah. in the Greensboro Coliseum. And I'm like, Horatio, get me, you almost made it. And, uh, yeah. But it was it was a great show. And, um, you know, I, the, 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 one of the first albums I ever had in my life was Purple Rain. Yeah, same here. And, um, and uh, when we got Cable... I'm like, again, this is, this is a huge deal, you know, we had cable, and Purple Rain came on cable, <laughs> and so my dad recorded it on VHS. Uh-huh. Off of, like, and, uh, HBO? Yeah. Oh! <laughs> so we could watch it, and um, and so, but every time he would we would watch it, he would make me turn around every time they would do the Apollonia scene. Uh-huh. I mean, uh, yeah, so every time Apollonia would get undressed, he'd be like... Turn around, cause yeah, I'm like eight years old. Yeah, yeah. At the time, so, uh, and he said, "Well, my," and it, that became the thing I just took everywhere with me. That you know, it, it was weird because you had that duality at the time of Michael Jackson versus Prince, and it was always played that way: who's better, Michael mm-hmm. Jackson or Prince? Yeah. But I loved them for two different reasons. Yeah. It's just two completely different reasons, and I think just Prince is different to me, because especially when I got to high school, Prince became much more meaningful to me. Yeah. Um, than Michael was, and not that I ever stopped liking Michael Jackson, but it was just the musicality of Prince started to take over. Mm-hmm. Whereas I think as a kid, I didn't understand what I was, how great a musician he was. Right. I thought he was making really cool songs, but as I got older and I was able to listen to it and understand what he had, was doing musically, yeah. And then when you start understanding, he was playing all 27 instruments on his albums when he first started yeah. and then he was producing his album at 19. Mm-hmm. It's like, it just, it, that talent, when people say, you know, you can see Justin Timberlake and Usher and Justin Bieber or these kind of people who are, who are emulating Michael Jackson and trying to give you that same energy and people can respond to that. Yeah. But I don't see how in this world somebody's going to be able to replicate what Prince gave us. Yeah. No, I don't, I agree. Two, uh, 
I mean, I, I've thought about how he's, it's too, he, he was too much of a combination of, of talent and hard work. Um, and, and I've often wondered if he had like a, like a channel in his brain where like he just new music basically couldn't just was seeping out of him. Like he almost needed to live in a studio. And I think he did for most of his life, you know, that like, he just like things he couldn't keep them inside. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, they, cause they talk about the vaults, uh, you know, of his stuff. And, um, but the, I, I, when I, when I saw him, I thought when I saw him live, which was, uh, actually it was in Raleigh for the musicology tour. And, um, I remember that five or 10 minutes into the show, you were, you're just mind is blown. It's like, this is all him. Like, this is his, like his stewardship, his band, like, um, and it just like hits you how just like he was a, a star. I mean, like a, a supernova. I mean, just, yes. it, it's, it's so clear. And, and then you're, and then he's like an incredible entertainer and, uh, and this was right around when he did the um, he did the Grammys with Beyonce, right? So so he broke into. I think he broke into when Doves Cry, with uh, Crazy in Love. He would just play the break, the horn break, and then go back into when Doves Cry. It was just like it was like a you know it was a DJ move, but he was doing it with a live band, and it was insane. <laughs> And, and I just go ahead, go ahead. I just I just think about like all the people that I see in him. Yeah, and and the, the things that can't like the part of his band being so egalitarian, like he got that he got from like Sly Stone. Yeah, and and it being made up of men and women of people of different races, and that's and him always being this. While he was the driving force, there was this, still this egalitarian of sharing this musicianship with people yeah. and having and constantly changing the band, not for the purposes I'm dissatisfied with you, but uh, my vision requires people who are fresh. Yeah. So let me bring in this group of people. I'm not dis- and it, the other ones never felt discarded. Yeah. And and then to give me, you know, I'm a huge fan of the time. Yeah. And. He played everything on those first two albums. It's just Morris is the only member of the time who's involved in the first two albums. Mm-hmm. But just to listen to the time as a band, to know that he pushed them to that. Yeah. And then you see the people that he's worked with over the that he worked with over the course of his life. And there was just something, like you said, there's there was something different about that need to produce it, that thing that whatever was inside of him yeah. that he even if it wasn't going to be popular, right? Because there's some of his albums that even me, I just sit there and I go, I don't know what he's doing with this one. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> for sure. I'm not there. Yeah, and like wherever he is, I I'm, I'm can't not. get there. <laughs> yeah, and, but I that never stopped me from waiting for the next one. Yeah, you know, I, I was always waiting for the next one, and I just and there's a that that a mystique that he managed to keep mm-hmm. um, about him. That other artists had to have to kind of do things for, right? But he didn't do he didn't do it was stunts. Him. Yeah, yeah. That's just who he was. That's yeah. it. It was never different. It was it, 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 it was always consistent. It didn't seem like he was ever chasing trends. Yeah. 
Um, it just felt like he was just being whatever was the muse was was telling him to be at that moment. Yeah. And so I, I think that that I thought it was also funny that like, when Michael Jackson died, there was a story where somebody said one of the reasons that Michael didn't like to sleep was because he felt if he went to sleep that God would give Prince the good songs. And it's like to feel that threatened when you're this level. You're Michael people, Jackson. Right. <laughs> but you feel this th- not by any other person in the world. Yeah. But you're thinking of this person. Yeah. It's like that's how much talent is wrapped up into this one little five foot two inch right. man from Minnesota. It's like how how does that find its way there? Yeah. I wonder was that I haven't I haven't gotten to read all the the print stuff. I'm still trying to wade my way through it, and certainly not all the performances, but um, that have since posted. But I wonder how much of that was actually how much Prince thought the reverse of that. I don't know that he did. I think, or if he did, it really didn't. It didn't. I don't think he did way. either. I don't think he viewed Michael that way. Yeah, I think that I mean there's there's some songs where he's mentioned him in passing. Mm-hmm. Um, the only story I remember him telling about Michael is that, that Michael offered him to do a duet for Bad, that they uh-huh. were going to do it together, but Prince did not like the lyrics. <laughs> he, did, he said uh-huh. he said either he said, uh, you know your butt is mine. He was like I'm not singing that to you. <laughs> he said, You're not singing that to me. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> so that's the only time I remember that. But Thus- also remember the whole. Yeah, thus Wesley Snipes. Thus, that's right. how you get Wesley Snipes, right there. And, he's, and I mean, and then there's the whole "We Are the World" thing that, that that controversy about how Princeton didn't want to be involved in that because he didn't want to be on the record with Michael. But I think you know, I think genius is hard to share sometimes. Yeah. And and I mean, and for him, to me, I think that the thing about it is that I don't look at his end as tragic. It's sad. Yeah. It's sad because we lost him. Yeah. But it's not like Rick James or Print I mean or Michael or you know, so many other artists or Elvis or something like that that the end was tragic. Mm-hmm. It's like okay, it for whatever reason it was his time and, yeah. and we lost him. But man, it's like again, I I don't want to be sad. I just really want to be like we had 57 years of that. Yeah. You know, and, and my whole life, that was that was there. It was available to me. And I have, so, again, it's something that I'll get to, that group of people who've been here for this, Yeah, for those kids who weren't here, who, who don't know what that experience is like. Right. And I just, you'll never be able to tell them what it was really like when it was at its peak. Yeah. They won't understand. Like, if they watch Bat Dance and they're like, that's corny. Right. Like you just don't understand what the summer of 1989 was like, and how big that was. Yeah, I mean, I have that album still. I yeah. still have it on vinyl. Yeah, and it's just that was like, oh, I played that album like ridiculously. Yeah, 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 yeah. I, yeah, that and, um, I mean, they won't know. Going back to Michael, they won't know what it was like to see the the moonwalk on the Motown special. You know, right. I remember talking, everybody talking about that the next day. I actually didn't see that until like a few days because everyone was talking. I think it was because it was, I think it was on too late when his part of the show came on. So I didn't actually get to see it when it happened. I, but I was like, everyone talked about it. And I think like they finally started showing clips of it on like MTV or something. 
Um, but I, I was the, you know, they said the same. I, they actually, I remember hearing the same thing about David Bowie when he died in mm-hmm. January was, um, Hey, you should be thankful that you lived at the same time that this guy did. And you know, I, the, the echo is the sentiment is, ex, you know, is exactly the same with Prince. It's like, and we can say the same thing about Michael Jackson. It's like, we got to be here when we were here. That's pretty damn cool, you know? Yeah. And, like, for Bowie, for me, the experience for Bowie was so weird because as an African-American, you didn't really know Bowie at first. Sure. Um, you know, just growing up, listening to the radio that I listened to. Yeah. And um, But everybody watched MTV. Yeah. So when MTV came around and you just saw stuff and you'd be like, okay. And then I think, the, I think for a lot of African-Americans – um, of my age, yeah, the introduction to Boy was under pressure. Mm. Like when, because that was a song that I could hear, and the beat was was similar enough to things that I heard before. Yeah, that I could be like, okay, who the hell is that guy? Yeah, who's singing this? Yeah, and I think it was the same way with Queen at that time too, because that was my introduction to Queen. Mm, yeah, and then being like, Freddie Mercury is awesome. Yeah, yeah. David Bowie is awesome. Yeah. Okay, let me get into this stuff a little bit more. And then now I because it seems like just walked music- in. Yeah. yeah. So, um, <laughs> it's, it's like music is so segregated. Right, right. Um, now, whereas I think we probably listened to a lot more of different things mm. um, when we during that early 80s period yeah. because MTV was so ubiquitous. Right. That I think a lot more black kids watched white artists yeah. and I think in return um, when Yo! MTV raps all those things right, started, right. white kids were exposed to black artists more yeah. and I think now it's it's gotten so compartmentalized with everything that mm-hmm. you can go all day and never listen to anything that you've not that you don't want to listen that you sure. either don't want to listen to or you never heard before yeah well and, and I'm sure in the early days of MTV um you know, maybe a lot of black kids were waiting for the you know the couple times that they were sh- going to show Prince or Michael Jackson, and so they had to sit through David Bowie and you know whoever else, Twisted Sister and you know, Motley Crue, and like to just to get to you know that's how we're not going to take it. Ended up on my iPad. That's how. <laughs> look, Uptown Girl. Yeah, I remember Uptown Girl used to play before the Thriller video on a pretty regular basis. So every time Uptown Girl came on MTV, I thought the Thriller video was going to come on. Next, yeah. So I'd be watching. <laughs> I would sit there and watch Billy Joel yeah. singing Uptown, and I'd be like hoping Thriller, and then it wouldn't come on that time. So I'd be watching, and that's how I ended up watching stuff like The Cars. Yeah, yeah. Or I'd end up watching, um, you know, just so many, you know, David Byrne. Right, just, yeah. I mean, like, that was my entry point because, yeah, you waited all day to kind of, kind of see a black artist. Yeah. And really, the, there was like it was Prince or it was Michael at that time that, that you were probably going to get and maybe run DMC right when they when you know once Walk This I Way mean, came for, out. Yeah, I was like not for Rockbox, but definitely for for Walk This Way and which I, which is still my least favorite Run DMC song. And, and just, oh yeah, yeah, I think we've had this. Yes, I hate that. I hate it. I hate it. Conversation before, and I like Aerosmith songs. There are yeah. Aerosmith songs that I'm really into, yeah. but I will not listen to that song. Yeah. I, 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 my wife will have it playing, and I'll just be like, no. <laughs> yeah. The uh, the other thing with that I thought about with Bowie is that his peak 
influential years were actually before MTV. It was it was the seventies. Yes. So yes. when he gets to the eighties, um, it's it's what I think they've it's like I think it's been termed like his sellout years essentially, where he basically yeah when he's like, singing like, dancing in the street with right Jagger. yeah yeah doing that and um, now uh, the Let's Dance song is still awesome, uh, but you know it was. But like he was definitely in a different creative zone. This was, you know, he he had already done his Ziggy Stardust phase and his Thin White Duke and his whatever the Soul Brother, like his Young Americans thing. Like he had already gone through like five different phases, and so at that point he had, I think, so his like maybe his best years had already bypassed us. Meanwhile, <laughs> Michael Jackson and Prince are like twenty two when. MTV hits, you know, it's, and, and, and Michael more than Prince took that form and, you know, went, you know, to I think Prince is, is, all, is, a, is, was harder to digest for some people because of yeah. the whole sexuality of sure. it. And Michael was kind of asexual for people. Yeah. And, you know, they, they, a lot less threatening in that regard. Sure. But Prince was overtly and, op- you know, openly sexual and in a, in a way that kind of, I think, frightened even though it seems, I mean, I you know, I never questioned his masculinity. Sure. You know, it, it never like yeah, he's wearing okay, he's wearing women's draws and and <laughs> and high uh, thigh high boots, and I never went, oh, he's so girly. I so never sure, that yeah. never that never happened to me. Yeah. Which is strange because again, I'm a kid who grew up in the South. Yeah. And 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 like most kids, you know, the the quickest thing to call somebody was a right. derogatory sure. you know name and then. And it's just, but that never happened with Prince. Yeah. That never, I don't, I don't recall any person really getting that way about him other than extremely religious groups who just wanted to, or Tipper Gore, you know, tripping out. But I mean, he was just, to me, he said, I remember on my headphones, like when, when the the Love Sign album came out, Mm -hmm. um, when he had first changed his name. Yeah. And. And I was just like, this is that album. People need to go back to listen to that one because it's so much better than you think it is. It's, mm-hmm. I, I think people just, I, I think, you know, I, my, when, he, when he came out with My Name is Prince, I think people thought it was, uh, that's kind of a reach. But then the rest of the album is so good. And yeah. then, I mean, he just made some, some amazing songs. Is that, and, the, and, is that the album with um, Sexy MF? Mm-hmm. That might be the greatest groove in the history of grooves is for that song. It's so good. It's flipped cause it flips it. It puts the, puts the, uh, the one is on the, it's on the snare versus the, the bass. Oh, it's so good. That's, that's that James, that's that James influence yeah. right there. Oh yeah. Yeah. It's, and that's the great thing I think about Prince is that you hear the, the, the legacy of so many people. You hear Hendrix, you hear James, you hear Bootsy, mm-hmm. you hear, Earth, Wind, and Fire, you're here, Jackie. Yeah, it's all there. Yeah. It's all there. Oh, and it's just, I mean, he could play blues guitar. He could play jazz guitar. He could yeah. play acoustic guitar. Whatever it was, he could do it. And it was just, I mean, what couldn't he, other than, he couldn't play the horn. That's it. Yeah. You know, that's, that's the only instrument I think he, he can't, couldn't do was, I never saw him play a trumpet right. or, or a saxophone or something. But he always got awesome saxophone players. He had like Candy Dolfer playing sax for him yeah, in his and band. Lucio Parker and yeah, it's yeah. Like... Well, and that's the other thing with um, 
with Prince and there's a number of art, other artists are the same, um, where you know that if they're in Prince's band um, and they tr- and you, he trusts them enough, you know that they're awesome musicians to have to pull right. off what they're doing. Um, same way James Brown, same way James Taylor is the same way. Uh, Sting is the same way. They, I, I go, I would go to see James Taylor and Sting, and like he would introduce all the musicians. They'd all be either like session players who played on a billion records, or they had already had their own careers and their own bands, and they're playing all the time. And you're just like, and it was like, it clearly they've decided that it's more important to play with Sting or James Taylor than to go on their own. Um, so you knew that they were just like. I guess the, like the respect that those guys had for musicians and to know that that's how that, and like as a musician myself, that they were going to be, you knew that that was going to be a good band because of the, because of the trust between those groups, the egalitarian nature, like you said. Yeah, absolutely. I think, I, I think one of the things that I enjoy most when I listen to him is that like I said, he's in control but he always gave the band an opportunity to shine. Yeah. He it was never the show was never just about him. He always gave people their opportunity to play and to show their own to have their own space within the group. And and that just that's that's rare cuz most most artists are, are insecure by nature. Yeah. And I think it seems like I mean just from you know reading stories from Jimmy Jam and, and guys from the time and and, and Sheila E, yeah. people who he really trusted mm-hmm. um, as musicians, yeah. for them to talk about how much really he was just meticulous yeah. that it had to sound this way while you're playing his music. Yeah. But he also wanted you to be, I mean, that to be an artist, to to, yeah. to not be not to be a robot. And and right. and I think. A lot of times, musicians, you know, who have people behind them, they like. I just want you to play the same every night. Right. And I don't think I don't I don't think he ever, um, as as he got deeper in his career, I think he got past the point where I want my shows to be the same every night. Whereas it just became I want my show to be great every night. Yeah. Yeah, and uh, and I and certainly the. Uh, he would, I remember, I don't know if, I remember on the musicology tour, he gave, like, his keyboard player had, like, a five-minute um, to to do, play whatever he wanted. And it was bizarre, but it was still, like, I think Prince probably went to the bathroom or something. I don't know, whatever. But if he, if Prince went to the bathroom, who knows? He was kind of, but, um, but, like, he gave him the five minutes to do this kind of, like, uh, synth- synthesizer solo. It was fine. But, I mean, it was kind of, like, that's kind of cool that he just like take five. There you go. Basically, do whatever you want, and and he let him do it on the tour. And I think that's that's pretty amazing. Well, all I know is like if they if they do turn the house into a museum and they let people come, I'm I'm going. Oh, my yeah. daughter has my daughter's been to Graceland, uh-huh. right? And she's been to Michael Jackson's birth home up in Gary, Indiana. Mm-hmm. So we going. We're going to go to Paisley Park if they ever open it up. And I mean, it's a, there are a few things left amongst like rock stars. Mm-hmm. Like the thing I always tell people when people ask me, why would you go to see Graceland? Because mm-hmm. I wasn't the biggest Elvis fan in the world, but yeah. I felt like, man, I want to go see, I want to go see this. Yeah, yeah. Because 
when you see celebrity homes on TV now so much, you see like it, how it's been structured and they've had a decorator come in and do all these things and it's not personal. Sure. It's just a, a glamorous house. Right. Graceland is so tacky and <laughs> so uniquely Elvis yeah. that that makes it worth it because you get a glimpse into who he was. You see the way he that was as a boy, a boy from that's exactly how a kid from Tupelo, Mississippi, right. if he got a lot of money, this is what he would do at his house. Yeah. <laughs> you know? <laughs> yeah. This is what he would do. So I want to see what. You know, I've seen pictures, but I just want to—I want to see it. I want to feel it. I want to just experience. It. I don't want to—I don't want to be one of those people. I don't want to be like stomping through it and touching it. That's—that's that's not the kind of person I am. And I, I hope most people who go there aren't that way. But I just want to—I want to feel it. I just want to see if I can feel whatever that was that was in there that made him feel so good about being there. Yeah. And I think that's what I said. I got—you get that from Graceland. You get—you get—you know why. Elvis felt at home there because it's his, it's really his house. Yeah. And I think I want to get that feeling at, at Paisley park. That sounds like a plan. I like it. (laughs) (laughs) Once again, an enormous thank you to David Grubb for talking with me. He and I have plans to do more of conversations with him uh, in the coming months, and I hope you will be stay tuned for those. And finally, raves. Something I've read, watched, and listened to that I highly recommend. For movie, I'm going to recommend Spike Lee's documentary, Michael Jackson's Journey from Motown to Off the Wall. As far as I know, it's currently playing on Hulu, Amazon, and Showtime. And I've rarely enjoyed a documentary more than I did this one. It essentially covers Michael Jackson from birth to age 20, when Off the Wall came out. It makes a compelling case, one I've heard from many a Michael Jackson fan, that it's Off the Wall that is Michael Jackson's greatest album. Yeah, I know. Thriller sold the most albums ever and was more influential culturally and started the music video revolution, etc., etc. But it's hard to make the case after watching this that Off the Wall isn't the better album. The stories about Michael Jackson are outstanding. It references his talent and his nonstop work ethic throughout, in particular during the Motown years where he basically made friends with every popular artist at Motown and just hung out with them and got to know them. It's likely he is the greatest combination of singer and dancer we've ever known. And the first time I watched it, I went back and rewatched 10 minutes of it again because it was so awesome. And aside from all that, the real gem of this movie was the concert footage that is sprinkled throughout from the Jackson's Victory Tours of 1980 and 81. Because a lot of that footage I had never seen before, and I'm sure a lot of other people haven't really seen it. But it felt really great to watch it. And as a reminder of just how good that entire family was at making music. 
Next up, my book recommendation for the week is The Actor Prepares by Konstantin Stanislavski. Wait, what? Book about acting? Well, let me explain. When I was working on my dissertation in the early 2000s, I did not own a computer at the time, so I wrote mine on my mentor's computer, Dr. Court McLaren. I spent a lot of time in his office, and one day on his bookshelf, I noticed this book there. I thought, hey, I know that book. What is it doing on his bookshelf? So, first, why did I know that book? I knew that book because you may be familiar with the TV show on Bravo, Inside the Actor's Studio. Well, Inside the Actor's Studio shows now maybe once a week on Bravo because they're too busy showing uh, reality shows about celebrities, accountants, and gardeners. But back when I was doing my doctorate, Bravo used to be only arts and music and concerts and documentaries about the arts. And they used to show Inside the Actor's Studio all the time probably because it was one of the only original shows that Bravo had at the time. And in the early episodes of that series, the guests were all members of the Actor Studio Drama School. That's why it's called Inside the Actor Studio. And whenever they talked to these actors, they always brought up The Method. And they were referring to Stanislavski and his books, including An Actor Prepares. So why was this book on Dr. McLaren's shelf? Dr. McLaren, my mentor, is best known for three major contributions to the world of percussion. Number one, C. Allen Publications, which is he founded and still runs today for music publishing. The National Conference on Percussion Pedagogy, which still runs every May. And his Percussion Methods textbook on the Common Elements Approach to Percussion Performance. Regarding the common elements approach, the essential idea is to be able to play percussion instruments effectively, as relaxed and efficiently as possible. And one of the sources he used to come up with that approach was inspired from an actor prepares. And the reason for this is that the method acting approach is one that requires someone to work inside out of the character, to access emotions easily, to find out the truth of the everyday life of the character and present it in a realistic fashion. And that's essentially what you're trying to do as a musician. When you take a piece, the piece is the character, you learn the piece inside out as much as possible, you have techniques that allow you to be able to play the piece easily and you present it in the most truthful way possible. And so there's a lot of commonalities between acting and performing music. One last point just about the book. When it came out in the 1930s, it was essentially heralded as a new way of acting. And once... Marlon Brando hit the scene in the 1950s, it essentially changed acting forever from that point forward. So, strongly recommend that. And the song for this week that I recommend is Don't Change Horses, 
in the middle of a stream by Tower of Power. The Hi-Hat Work by drum set player David Garibaldi is top-notch. The horn playing is perfect, as usual, for Power Power. And honestly, just try not to yell out, Give it up! Give it up! Hi-ho, yeah! Anytime that shows up during this piece. So, check those three things out, and I hope you will enjoy them. Thanks again for listening. Please check out all links on the iTunes page for this podcast, as well as on my website at PeteZambito.com slash Pete's Percussion Podcast. And I will see you next time when my guest will be University of Missouri percussion professor Megan Arns. Thank you.